Epic Games resists an alleged monopoly on microtransactions. Executive orders seek to circumvent congressional power of the purse, which seeks to circumvent natural property rights and self-ownership. And we talk to California State Assembly candidate and broadcasting advocate James Just. I'm Boston, and this is Boston Makes the News. One hundred percent truth. Balanced reporting. No apologies. This is BMN, America's greatest newsroom. Your mileage may vary. BMN boss make the news. Take no responsibility for honesty, greatness of newsroom, truth, or even quality. Please enjoy BMN responsibly. Welcome back to BMN, folks. I'm sorry it's been so long. I, uh, I've i been up to a lot. I haven't been able to record as often as I would have liked. So here we are back again. Uh, I am getting married in about three weeks, so I've been kind of hard at work trying to get some of that stuff put together and keep things going along that road. So now that we've got some time here, I figured I'd uh, at least try and get you that extra episode that we were talking about. So... Uh, let's start by talking about uh, that thing that everybody's interested in, you know, the whole Fortnite, Apple, Google thing, right? I wrote something for that. <clears throat> Last week, Fortnite game developer Epic Games decided to offer an alternative payment platform to Apple customers for their mobile app, allowing them to pay Epic directly for in-game currency and digital items. While this doesn't sound important on its face, the response from Apple tells the story. They pulled one of the most successful apps of all time off the App Store. This means that nobody can install the app, and future updates will not be pushed to their more than a billion devices. Apple demands a 30% cut from Fortnite transactions on mobile, but on their Macintosh computers they charge a 3% transaction fee. This strategy holds true in that Apple has built their relationships with businesses like this for a while now. One should ask themselves, what does the App Store sell? Is it is it apps? I don't really think so. Sure, that's what it looks like. But you can theoretically install apps sideloaded if the you know OS didn't block the process for anyone but testers and devs. Essentially, they sell access to consumers, not apps. App devs with life-changing apps that want to access not only a plurality but also a majority of today's mobile computing screens must pay a portion of all their sales to the host or be relegated to obscurity, hitting a minority share of said screens from Android devices and still must face Google's charges for the pleasure of their now second-rate marketplace. From a more personal perspective, this has artificially inflated the cost of in-game items from these developers on the platform. In-game microtransactions support development and continued support, and Apple demanding a cut of that forces prices up to ensure enough cash is flowing into the developer to keep the game afloat. Since the game itself boasts cross-purchase and cross-play on PC, PS4, I think Switch too, uh, one can imagine they don't want prices to be different on these platforms, causing prices to rise and equalize across all of their platforms, which means that prices on other platforms are affected by Apple's pricing and Google's pricing. This causes a bit of a schism in in me, as I generally don't have a buy-in to the whole, you know, we must break up the monopolies line, but here it gets a little harder. 
A laissez-faire boyo like me would hope for the chance that a competitor would spring up and provide a better alternative that didn't do this to developers. But it seems at first blush that this would not be possible due to regulations and artificial or lobbied barriers to entry. If Apple can charge 3% to handle microtransactions on their PC platform, what are they doing to make that extra 20% valuable to software developers? As this reporter sees it, it's just an entry fee to the walled garden built around every captive Apple user. While lobbyists for big tech firms like Apple pass through the Capitol to meet with their prospective clients and jockey for legislative position, some lobbyists walk the other way and take a more direct approach. They pursue lobbying the executive in the hopes of changing procedure or of obtaining a favorable executive order. For those who wish to hear it, Executive orders are supposed to act as memoranda or sets of instructions and rules to the different offices of the executive branch of government. As the president sits as chief executive, imagine this more like a set of goals, orders, or plans sent from your CEO to you that change the way you do business. They have no effect on your clients or the competition, as they aren't subject to your rules but they function as law inside the corporate confines of your business alone. Last week, the President of the United States issued a series of XOs in an attempt to create a deal for the unemployed that Congress could not. I imagine that most of America is split on this. The thought that this is some form of executive overreach is justified by the power of the purse given to Congress could be tempered by the fact that budgets being used to fund this are potentially executive branch coffers. The spirit of the Constitution that may well be troubled, however, by the precedent that welfare programs utilized in the U.S. have been funded by Congress historically. I am personally far too anxious about the use of force and unilateral decision-making to see the exos issued as a good thing. My opinion, however, isn't worth the price of admission as Congress has decided to recess until early September. Maybe it's the raving cynic in me getting riled up, but I almost think the DNC might be using this recess to allow these executive orders to fail or not help as much so they can come back in September to a bargaining table that will cover a lot more wish list items, like bailing out the bad pension deals made by the states with federal money, or supplying funding for the post office. I, for one, am not willing to give up my tax money to go to another state's unhealthy decision-making regarding pensions and union deals. The fact that anyone in politics is willing to let harm befall America to prove a point is grade-A boog bait. I choose people over politics. There's an update to this, actually. Uh, very recently, I think when the past, within the past maybe 24 hours, an emergency session was called by, uh, by Pelosi to address the fact that the post office doesn't have enough money to deal with uh <laughs> to deal with what they're saying is going to be uh you know a flooding of balladry coming through in November uh this happens of course after we've seen information saying that the post office has enough money to run until 2021 that's assuming maybe there's no changes I don't know, but there's also a series of issues with the way that ballots are sent out and the rules in the in the districts themselves that say, you know, send your ballot in four days before, right? Well, it takes more than four days for 
mail to make it from one place to another. The, the post office itself is saying, please allow one week for delivery. If people are being told by the government to submit four days, there's three days there, you know, three sevenths, uh, like error fluff that would result in essentially somebody's ballot not making it in time, which means either they delay the election or that ballot doesn't count. So it's a big mess. Uh, people have been going to Walmart attending rallies for a long time uh, with approval. There's people in the streets speaking their mind and uh, doing what they're going to do. So I imagine that we could probably create an organized situation in which people could vote normally uh, and certainly not be any more dangerous than a presidential election rally or a, uh, you know, completely unregulated protest. So, all right, we're going to take a break. And right when we get back, we're going to speak with James Just. Don't touch that dial or button thing and whatever. We'll be right back. Hello, Sean. This is Andrew Heaton. I want to say hello to you and to all of the fine listeners of Boston Makes the News, where the sun never sets on bowl S asterisk asterisk T. I looked at your website. And I want to encourage you not just to listen to my podcast, The Political Orphanage, which you will find is a great place to encounter ideas and people that uh, are capable of enjoying conversation and friendships with folks they disagree with. Not just that. But to support me in my triumphant crusade to become vice president of these United States. Now, normally, when someone runs for higher office, they go for president, which always kind of struck me as cocky. Or they hope that guy's going to get impeached or maybe whacked. And so they run as vice president and hold his coattails. Well, I'm not doing either of those things. I'm just running for vice president. And I'm doing it on the rogue wig party ticket. I'm bringing back the wigs. Bringing back the wigs. Being in a little bit of a nap since 1852, but we're back on the scene and we're coming on strong. And I want to encourage your listeners to do that. Now, we haven't had time to actually put together a rogue wig party platform yet. Um, I, I can I can tip the deck on how I think it's going to go. Um, rather than being pro-environment or anti-environment, we, we just, uh, we're just going to oppose deserts and be very pro-forest and farm. Pretty much farms and forests are good. Uh, Arizona's just really been letting everybody down, in my opinion, and large parts of Nevada and California. If, if your state's mostly sand, what are you doing? We're going to fix that. We're going to put in forests, possibly mushrooms. I don't know. We're going to do that. Um, a lot of people, I think this is a very pertinent issue in the election that people aren't really giving sufficient coverage to, but uh, we're going to make Pluto a planet or what? Is it a planet? Or is it a planetoid? You know, nobody's talking about this. And I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter. We're going to blow it up either way. That's what the Whig Party's endorsing. We, we've decided we're not even going to wade into that waste of time argument. We're just going to be all in favor of destroying Pluto entirely. And meanwhile, while we're in space, we're taking the moon back. We claimed it. We're the guys that went up there and put that MTV flag up on the moon. We're that guy that played golf. And now... Uh, what's this deal? It's like an international body. We just let it go. There's not even people up there. Like, you know, maybe if there were 
you know, folks up there, and we were like, well, we, we took it, we should really give it back. I'd kind of get it, but there's not even folks up there. It's our moon, we're going to take it back. If there's any other people up there, you know, when we get up there, we'll kick them out. I mean, like the Chinese, Russians, that kind of thing. If it turns out there's like moon people, then, then that's their business. So doing that. Um, let's see, other reasons to join the, the rogue Whig party, why well, you should support my candidacy. Uh, Republicans are red, Democrats are blue, we've gone Argyle. And uh, our mascot is the raccoon. Or if you want to be casual, the trash panda. So support the rogue wig party. Support people in the rogue wig party running down ballot from me if any of them exist. And support me, Andrew Heaton, in being your next vice president. If elected, I promise, I will shake hands with old people. I will try not to hit on the wives of foreign leaders. I will try not to do that, and if I do it, I will do it discreetly in such a way that I am unlikely to elicit any type of military response. And also, I will live in the Naval Observatory, except when it's hot. I'm going to go to Canada in, during the summer, but the rest of the year, I'm going to live in the Naval Observatory, and y'all are invited to come hang out, and we'll have a kegger. So, Sean, keep up the good work. Shout out to you and to your listeners at Boston Makes the News, and keep it wiggy. James Just is a candidate for California State Assembly out of Sacramento and is the sitting Sacramento Libertarian Party vice chair. A true, cool-handed peacewalker, James runs Libertarian Counterpoint, a podcast and public access show that contrasts current events analysis with their Libertarian Counterpoint. See what I did there? No? Ugh, all right, let's just get to the talk. We're on with James Just. How you doing, man? I'm all right, Mr. Boston. How are you today? Oh, just splendid. Proper chuffed, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you, I've been following you on Facebook and, uh, and other, well, actually mostly Facebook. You're, you're, my Facebook, for some reason, is like basically you, Andrew Heaton, and John Stossel right now, and I don't know why. <laughs> algorithms are weird uh <laughs> algorithms feed you what you what you ask for man so somehow you're asking for me i don't know how that happens but it, it's... <laughs> well, it could be a heck of a lot worse you know i guess but if you i i i'm i'm chilling out on that though like i'm i'm i'm, I'm happy to hear your uh your your candid moments when you talk and uh you know it's it's really really real i i don't you don't see that from politicians at the higher levels i they must be too busy or something or maybe they're too afraid of showing themselves to to risk what happens when you know they they show a little bit too much of their real self and and it and it might you know they run the risk of it not being taken the way they want you know but i think it's i think it's pretty rare well i think higher politicians are afraid it's they're afraid to be themselves because they've got you know groups and activists they have to keep happy and so if they're themselves they're afraid of upsetting one group or another and well but that's led to a toxic political structure and so my whole goal in being open as i am is to try and change that toxic nature of politics right on right on so when when yeah i i I talk about this every once in a while. I, I had a segment written for my last show, and I never did it. So I guess maybe maybe I'll run it with you. Um, 
maybe I think I think you could probably offer something on this sure. is I, I found I was watching an episode of some kind of uh, it was kind of like Colbert, but it's like a little bit more of like a it's kind of like a comedic TED talk. It's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And the guy the guy mentioned a concept he called negative partisanship. And uh, it was intriguing to me. So I, I, you know, kind of analyzed the word, applied it, thought about it, the way that it affected us. I Wikipedia cites negative partisanship as um, as like the well, I'm not going to quote it because I don't have it open. But when I looked it up on Wikipedia, I got the vibe that it was the tendency of people to take up the cause of fighting somebody else. And that's it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not, it's not taking up a cause of, you know, like if, if someone said to you, I'm, you've heard a million times, right. Natural rights preexist government, government can't take them away. Government's primary role is to protect those rights. That's something that people can be a positive partisan for. Mm-hmm. But if you're told you need to vote for me because a vote for anyone else is just a vote for the guy that you know, you're afraid of. That's just, negative partisanship and that that applies not just to politics but in the way that we debate so it's basically it's basically a recipe for toxicity at least the way i see it well yeah it it sets up the position where we're trying to win all the time rather than trying to solve problems or to create peace it's like arguing with your spouse right you don't actually want to win the argument you want to solve whatever disagreement you're having you want to reach a conclusion you you want to make peace and so if I was actually just listening to Jordan Peterson, uh, a clip of Jordan Peterson uh, this earlier this afternoon, he was talking about it, about how you make your, like when you argue with your wife or your spouse, wanting to win the argument is the worst thing you can do because you don't want a defeated spouse. And then the spouse feels defeated and they try to get back. And so what has happened in our politics is we've gotten to that point where we so much want to win and we're so afraid of losing that that fear overtakes us. And so now we end up voting and acting and passing policies out of fear of the other person rather than out of support for what we want or it's a genuine solution to the problems we're seeking. That's that's pretty profound. You know, while you were talking, my you know, my I was kind of piecing together things. I was and one of the conclusions that I came to, um, I'm not sure if I'm quoting this right, but it's I think it's called like the 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 prisoner problem. You ever heard that one before where they talk about, they say they, they got two guys in a room and they offer them each a reduced sentence of five years if they tell on the other, right? And it, But if no one tells, they both get 20 years? Yeah, I think I've heard of it somewhere before. I don't think I heard of it as the prison problem, but I, I think I, I heard the concept before, yeah. Essentially, the idea is you create a solution or you create a situation where there is no incentive uh, to protect the other person. And there are direct incentives to narc on each other, right? So you, you start looking for ways to hit. You look for ways to strike down. You look for ways to break because the incentive is in the hit. Like uh, I remember a factoid that I read somewhere, uh, something like 10% of advertising in 2012 or, or 2012. I think it was 2012. It was 10% of advertising was negative. And in 2016, 85, 80% was negative advertising for political campaigns. Someone caught on to the idea that people don't want to vote for somebody that they think is excellent. They want to protect themselves from the biggest danger. And the the concept of self-preservation, I mean, that that force is so powerful that I can't, I couldn't possibly disagree. 
Well, yeah, but there's a, all things marketing have a comeback. And what I mean by that is we've pushed so far that 10% was negative and now it's 85%. But now so many people hate that negative advertising. They hate that negative marketing. That's the only reason people like myself actually have any type of chance at all is because we're going the completely opposite. I'm doing essentially no negative campaigning, no negative advertising at all. I'm trying to keep as much positive uh, focus as I can because I can see that most of the people are tired of it. That's why they don't vote. They don't vote because they look at the toxic politics and they say, I'm not going to participate in that. What's the point? Yeah, I see. I see exactly what you're saying. And you're running a podcast the entire time you're running a campaign. That means if people want to hear from you, all they have to do is tune in. And and once a week, they've got this. I, I've only tuned in once and I didn't spend the whole time listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I got I to gotta be honest. I, I was, you know, having a fun Saturday night with my, my roommate, and my, my fiance. So I, I, I tuned in for a little bit, but um, man, that, that podcast is like, it's like chicken soup, dude. Well, I've it's, got a couple podcasts, up. so you have to, you're going to well, have to, the Saturday night podcast, I'm, the Saturday night podcast. Yeah. yeah the Saturday night I podcast. Wanted you to introduce it. We've just started a Saturday night podcast, Saturday nights at 1130. We call it late night love. And it's just, it was, we actually started it because of the toxic nature of running for politics. I needed a break. I needed a mental break where I can get two, three hours a week where I focused on nothing but positivity. And as, and even as much as I try to run a positive campaign, right, it's just so much of the news. You have to input all of this. And so it's like, I'm going to focus for three hours. And it's actually starting to grow into this night thing. My mother actually called it. It's a combination between Howard Stern and Dr. Ruth. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's hilarious my, my my pops mentions like when he heard my show he's like that's a combination of and and mentioned two like old radio folks that i had no idea like the era of radio is basically gone like the radio personality so and and you know podcasting's kind of taken over on that but when people say you know you're like a combination of like there's this one this this like duo of radio guys one of their names mm-hmm. is landry i think it is and they were famous for writing fake ads on their radio show that I can't, I can't remember the name. I got to ask my pops, but he's like, you're like these guys. Cause I really I think love I remember the ads. show he's talking about though. I actually, I don't remember the names, but I think I remember the show. I used to love old radio shows cause I stay up late at night. I'm a night owl, you know? And so it's mm-hmm. not eight or late night. And you listen to talk radio. I remember the days of art bell and you know, that tells me I go back, but I actually think the podcasts are the new radio personalities. It's their podcasts are what radio used to be. Yeah. And you got, you got some really like, I listen to I listen to a few. Uh, everyone like every time you ask like what podcast are you into, everyone it's like everyone's got a list that's like ninety percent new because you know you can only listen to so many and there's so many out there. Yeah, but the, there's some really awesome personalities that I just kind of stumbled into, and I still don't know exactly how. But you know, just really really good people that are interested in in nuanced conversation and being positive about difficult things. And, and it, it makes, it makes life better because there's, it is just, it's proven financially, uh, financially wise, like for monetization purposes to, to drum up fear and to, to make people uncomfortable. And so you got shows like this or the opposite. It's not exactly as easy to directly, you know, uh, it's not as, as much of a market friendly idea, but that doesn't change the fact that it's going to be incredibly attractive to people who might tune in like, you know, on a Saturday night after getting some bad news that morning, like today, oh man, today I felt like junk. I did. 
I felt like I just, my, my brain wasn't working right and stuff just wasn't happening. And, you know, what I wanted to do was, you know, that I wanted to do something that therapeutically reminded me that life could be as good as it was. Because mm-hmm. realistically, if I take a step back at any point in time, I can go, you know, maybe it's not perfect, but dang, isn't it fun? You know, like you can, you can kind of get, you, you can always dig for something and, and a reminder of that with, with a, with a really nice late night show on Saturdays, uh, I can definitely see the value in that. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, it's what we're trying to do with that. It really is. We are just trying to bring back something. We're trying to bring back something that we have lost this notion that our, our daily lives are so filled with toxic nature, that it's politics or even our personal lives and we can't get away from it. And so we have to find some way to kind of reconnect with our more natural selves. And, you know, I talk a lot about in my campaigns and on my TV shows, I actually do a number of TV shows, right? Cause I've got a TV show that we do every week, a libertarian counterpoint. We talk politics and I do uh, campaign live streams a couple of times a week. And as a campaign, you know, as a candidate, you run off and you do talk to all kinds of people. And so it's very difficult for people to keep a positive mindset when you are being hammered day in and day out by negativity. And it's just the news. You just have to turn on the news. And it's like there's a fire down the street or there's a, you know, somebody had a tragic accident. It's not even have to be politics. Just the news is so overwhelmingly negative. And so I don't, anything I can do to make the world just a slightly better place, I figure I'm going to try to do. (laughs) That's, I, I really resonate with that because my angle, as I've been kind of getting more comfortable with this whole process, it's it's just it's just whistling past the graveyard and laughing. Like someone else will address the graveyard. Someone certainly will. It's, I don't have to do that. But to be the guy who goes, Extinction, Extinction Watch 2020, right? And then I give somebody a science fiction storyline and they're like, isn't that just the plot of The Matrix? And I go, well... That's not what the news says, you know, it, to make fun of the fact that what's going to kill us this week in 2020, right? It, yeah. the, that's, that's something that I was thinking about working on one of my, one of my guys. And it's, uh, I just love the idea that even if you're just like, no, it's forbidden, you shouldn't be able to laugh at that. Like, no, do it, dude. Life's that's, too short. That's actually why you have to laugh at it. Exactly. You have to laugh at it. Uh, we laugh a lot around here at this house because we, we have to laugh at everything. Otherwise, you cry. I mean, I like to, 15 years ago, I could barely leave the house. And so when I, I have an easy thing when I can take a step back and I can look at my life is much better now than it was 15 years ago, right? So it's easy for me to go back and I can look and go, okay, I can put everything into perspective because 15 years ago, I was homebound. I couldn't leave the house. I really just, just to go out to the store to get my daughter and my kids food was a chore, a serious mental chore. But now I'm sitting here running for office. I'm on TV and a podcasting and I'm doing all this kind of all this, you know, outgoing work. And it's, you know, it's kind of amazing that in such a short period of time, I've made this great big change. But I actually haven't made a change, right? I've just I'm still me. I'm still the same person I was. I'm just stronger. But I but I'm stronger because I focused on the positive aspects that I had. I have a strong family. I have, you know, a family support unit that helped me piece my life back together when it fell to pieces. And so, and I had, you know, this wonderful house my grandfather built that I get to live in. And that gives me uh, That's a, really sense cool. of, a sense of security. Well, it's quite, that story is actually great. My uh, my grandmother wouldn't marry him unless he built her a house. So he literally built her a house. <laughs> <laughs> it's brick by brick. When I say my house is built with, you know, brick by brick with 
brick mortars and love and tears and all that. It's quite literally what built by built with love. You know, that's the, not not to not to maybe further sell the value in that because I'm sure you're fully aware of it. Uh, I spent every weekend at my grandparents' house, and that uh, when when they when they passed, uh, you know, m- months later, the house just went on the market, and I don't know what's up now. Like you know, so to to that is a really really wonderful thing, and I'm I'm actually incredibly happy for you that uh, that 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 sense of foundation and 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 tying in roots to your family is is uh is there for you because that's you know i'm i'm still confident that someday i'll be able to to reacquire that that property my my brother and i have always been talking about that so we're it's just going to be a longer road for us but uh because buying any property out here i mean yeah, yeah, it's insane it's literally if i had to do it why, now I that's why i'm moving I, your way <laughs> i couldn't live here if i had to live here during if in my current economics i could not live where i'm living if it wasn't for my grandparents' house, the fact that I, you know, it's already paid for, that I, I couldn't live here. I'd have to go move somewhere else or change, completely change my lifestyle where I'd have to focus on drop all the political activity, drop trying to make the community a better place, and I'd have to focus on making money. And so this, this house actually does far more for my community than just me. It allows me to help my community. And I think, we, the, yeah. I think we forget about that, you know, as part of... We talk about the, the value of what is the home. You know, the American dream was a home and a white picket fence. But it wasn't your home so you can sell it later and move to Florida. It was your home so you could pass it off to your grandchildren. And so when somebody in a future generation had, had some kind of life problems, he had some place to go, a, a, a safety net, a family safety net. And generations of my family, my mother and my aunts and my nieces, we've all kind of focused on we're making sure to keep this house in the family, right? We don't, I don't care about anything else. If it's me living here, it's me. If it's somebody else living here, it's somebody else in the family. But the house needs to stay in the family. And we've kept that as a family value. And I think it's, you know, as tough as California is to live in here, I've got to keep that as a family value. Yeah. Well, it's, it's going to be, I mean, you've already witnessed that it's, it's already proven its worth. Like that's, that's the reason, well, it's not the reason, right? Cause mm-hmm. the, there's tons of reasons for all these things. But one of the reasons that, uh, that we're considering a move is because it's going to put me in a position that, you know, like down, down here in Southern California, good luck, dude. Good luck. I mean, median home value in my area is like 850 right now and it's climbing. <laughs> there's, there's yeah. no winning. So part of it is, you know, you cut that down two thirds and now you're kind of the, that the area that I'm planning to move to is closer to that, Yeah, you know? So well, it's, I'm on the edge it, of the ghetto and it's like 400, $450,000. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> yeah. it's better, but it's, not, <laughs> but it's not that great. Now there are areas in town that are actually kind of cheaper and nice. You know, I, if you're coming up in Sacramento way, go out to Rio Linda, people make fun of Rio Linda, but it's still relatively cheap and you've got lots of freedom out there. So yeah, you know, the only thing that's weird about Rio Linda is it's a donut hole. Like yeah. it's 30 minutes to a freeway in every direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, this is true. It is true. But that's why it's cheaper. You know, and they've actually made some road improvements. It's actually only about 20 minutes now. But <laughs> <laughs> well, what am I? I'm, I'm, I'm maybe five minutes from a freeway down here. But, you know, we got tons of those down this way. So, yeah, well, I'm only a couple minutes from a freeway, too. I, I, I love where I live, but except for, you know, the government and. My neighbors are great, except for the ones who I've come in lately. You know, we've got the whole gentrification issue. So people from San Francisco have moved in and which itself is fine, except they've come in and they've kind of changed the economics of the neighborhood. And so a lot of people who have lived here for 20 years are having trouble getting by. And 
you know, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard. I'm I'm in I'm in Huntington Beach, so uh, that's kind of already. Some I'm I'm gonna get I'm gonna get added for this, but that's fine. At me, I don't I don't care. It's like every interview, I always say, you know what? Screw it. At me, everybody. Yeah. I don't I don't care. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's pretty much already happened here. Like it's different. Yeah, no. Yeah. It, it's, but, it, but it's still happening. It uh-huh. already happened. And people were like set up in their heads that like this is already it's a, a juji bougie place to live and it's and it's expensive. But now right over in the, the you know, like right, you know, Beach Boulevard and Edinger where all the shopping centers are now there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, $3,000 a month studio crap going in. And I'm just like, what in the holy freaking Irvine is this? I mean... <laughs> it's, yeah, well, it's not it's not okay because i mean a lot of people are real upset with it i i guess i i'll live you know i'm not i'm not hurting it does mean we get nicer things in that area so yeah but there are things that you can't afford to go to it's like <laughs> you know i don't eat out and so there's nothing so there's really nothing in my in my neighborhood because all that we have here now in my neighborhood now is uh restaurants and bars and, yeah, well, and, yeah. and restaurants restaurants that serve alcohol they're not technically bars they're restaurants that serve alcohol and then we have um, coffee house shops. And that's essentially it. And since I don't drink coffee or booze and I don't eat a lot, I don't, I had a concussion. So food tastes wrong to me now. And so I don't eat, so I don't eat out. And so I have no, there's no place for me to go <laughs> in my yeah. neighborhood. It was like, what am I going to go do? I can go down to the nursery, I suppose, and look at plants. But other than that's, that, <laughs> dude, I miss that so much. Our nursery has been closed. I, I don't, I don't have the ability to plant a garden in my backyard at all i don't i don't even have one i got a, like a patio thing i guess but i was i really really wanted to start like my when i was a kid my grandmother uh she taught me how to grow a salsa garden so i i used to do that and that was my thing i took care of that when i was over there on the weekends and so i wanted to start doing that again because every year we'd make this i mean i don't know if you'd call it like authentic or good but i thought it was delicious and then the last year that i was there i convinced her to let me use uh, apricots off of her tree to make like an apricot salsa mm-hmm. and I, I just want to do that again so bad i every time i bite into an apricot it just takes me straight back like it, it doesn't matter when it apricots remind me of my grandmother period and then, then then there's this one flower smell that i still don't know what flower it is uh yeah. but if, if i smell it it's straight back because she had them i know she had them and because she, she had lots of weird flowers she had an expensive landscaper come by every week and do excellent things with her yard uh and i remember this smell like the back of my hand and if i i walk around some areas and i just smell it and it just pulls me right back and i kind of want to i kind of want to find what that is i want to go walk around a nursery and find out what that is so i can plant them you know yeah and uh you know maybe, maybe someday they'll it'll reopen but the the armstrong out here has been closed for a while i think somebody at me if i'm wrong i'm probably wrong no, so please it's so hard to know what's open and closed these days, yeah. you know, but, and I'm not a gardener. I have a black thumb. I can't even grow weed properly. So, you know, it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told that that's actually really hard to do, but you know, well, what I know about it. Yeah. But it, to grow it good is, is hard. Yes. But you should be able to, it's a freaking weed. You should be able to grow it, you know, <laughs> so, to grow it good is, is, is a hard thing to do, but to be able to grow it, you should be able to grow it. And I can't even Man. do that. So I've seen some of those pictures. You ever look at those pictures, of those people who do it professionally and they get these like crazy, like Christmas tree sized, yeah. colorful, crazy things. Holy cow. Those guys are like, 
those guys are pioneers, man. I don't even get it. It's not even a culture I'm part of, but it is the coolest darn thing. Yeah, well, that's that's farmers. You know, they're they're fundamentally farmers, and it's just they're just farming marijuana. That's all it is, and they're just good at it. When any farmer that's good at growing a tomato can be good at growing a, you know, a plant. It's just the focus on what that plant needs. And so I you, love seeing people just become masters at something. You know what I mean? That I can look at and go, that person has that person has reached peak pot growing <laughs> yeah well it's funny we used to it wasn't just 10 years ago we used to literally have to call it a uh, tomato farming right when you go into the store to buy your stuff even though it was kind of legal here is as to kind of grow your own me- uh, medical marijuana it was legal but you had to call it tomato farming because it was kind of the key the code words was tomato farming and now we can sit here openly talk about yeah i can't grow weed for, to save my life and it's, <laughs> so, I, so I, I like the fact that we've for me that's progress right we can sit here and have open conversations about uh, how we can't grow up simple weed it's just dude, <laughs> my co-workers listen i'm gonna get random drug tested on t- tomorrow it's gonna be I, so great i apologize <laughs> oh, there's nothing to worry about but it's just it's just funny you know like okay i could go work you need me to bill hours but fine i'll go drive to a medical facility somewhere and do what they tell me to do yeah it, it, I, <laughs> Yeah, I've got anxiety disorder, so I microdose uh, during the day. So I have to do jobs that don't do that or that accept that explanation, which I've had jobs do accept that explanation. Say, okay. And they've tested me and just discounted the, the marijuana part of the test. Yep. See, the thing is, is the world could the world could be so good, right? That's yeah. the thing. It's like you, you do this thing that is essentially harmless, but it's showing a positive effect for yourself. Has it, has it helped, honestly? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing about anxiety disorders is it's so individual, right? If I actually smoke the wrong kind of pot, it actually makes my anxiety worse. So I have to be very careful about the type of pot I smoke and, and you know, and how much I smoke it because I drive a lot. And so I have to be very, very careful about how much I, I take during the day. One, two hits, sit around for 20 minutes, make sure I know exactly if I'm good to drive or not, right? I have to be insanely careful. Oh, I and, imagine. Yeah, and so... You know, and then in the night, I can if I need to relax more, I can I can relax some more. Or if it becomes recreational, I'm not going to lie. There's times when we sit down and we have a recreational, like anybody sits down and you know splits a bottle of wine with somebody. I don't we don't drink here, and so <laughs> you know. That's well, what I we mean, do. Do, well, why would you need it? Like seriously, people are out killing their livers. Like, come yeah. on, guys, let's get smart already. But whatever, whatever, fine, fine. Well, At me, you know, I don't care. Everybody, everybody has you know. At some me, people, feds. Everybody has their thing. Some people like to exercise a lot and it's bad for your joints or your knees and they have to get knee surgery and hip surgery, but exercise is what makes them feel better about themselves. It what makes them, it what makes them more mentally healthy. I think we, we have, we don't understand in this country how much emotional health relates to our physical health. And so whatever people need to do to take care of their emotional health, I'm all for. Now, a lot of times when people get into the addict stage, what they're covering is for pain, either emotional pain or physical pain. And so let's deal with addicts. Let's deal with their pain so we can then we deal with their drug addiction problem. But the way we deal with it now is just terrible. We, we don't even deal with the problems. We don't, we don't even discuss mental health problems in any real way. We, we throw some money at a program and pretend we did something. It's Dude, I'm trying to find awful. which one of my friends isn't, you know, isn't a stoner like I, I mean i know there are plenty of them that are but like nowadays it's like who cares but let's it's this the stigma of this whole thing is just ridiculous one plus one is not three you know yeah. what i mean i'm not i'm not down with this maybe when i was younger and i didn't know and i couldn't think for myself the same way maybe i could be convinced 
but now no one is telling me one plus one is three. Nobody. Yeah. Well, and it, it doesn't saying it shouldn't be illegal or saying it should be legal or saying people should be free to do it. Isn't a isn't doesn't mean you think people should do it. Right. It's I think people should be free to drink. I don't think anybody should, but I think they should be free to drink. You know, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, I, personally I got into I just got into apple ciders recently, high end uh, ones. And yeah. so that's that's kind of that's kind of where I am is uh, is in the, the world of exploring the history of cider and mead making. Mm -hmm. So there's there's I haven't got into like podcasting about it. And I doubt I ever will. I'm not that much of a <laughs> of a brewery distillation wonk and i'm sure there's plenty of folks who do that way better than me my my shtick is satire so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I mean, but the thing is you know like the same is the same as you know someone talking about how they grow a specific plant the way they do it and all their techniques and stuff this you can have mastery of any craft mm -hmm. and and just a lot of people don't value some of those crafts the same and society surely doesn't because you know you you can't give someone who you know, makes baskets a million dollars a second. It just, it just doesn't work. Things break. I, I've heard, I, I got, I got a bunch of buddies who, who, you know, they kind of, you know, how you, you know, you, we had libertarians running for president that said taxation is theft all the time. And then, and then we, you know, other people will say value is subjective. And so, and, and that's them like professing their, their economic school of thought in like a three word little chunk Yes. Little, little nugget. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't actually say very much, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they're just, they're just, it's dude, it's the, it's a libertarian equivalent of virtue signaling. Oh I mean, no, it, it, clearly, <laughs> it clearly is virtue signaling. I could actually explain what it technically means, but it's actually an explanation and I don't mind using my words, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I think even I could at this point, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm a little green when it comes to, economics i i love the study of economics because to me it's 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 it can be quantitative but it can only be quantitative in certain ways like i ask i asked my my econ teacher in high school i said what's the units of demand well it's quantity what do you mean well you know like if you're demanding water bottles it's the number of water bottles so you can really just do demand based on like, well, we have a demand of five water bottles and we're supplying four and that directly affects the price with some sort of mathematical function. And he goes, no. I'm like, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always, I always found out economics interesting about economics is that it's not predictive. It, it actually doesn't tell you. It cannot predict the future for Jack. It, it tells you no. what happened and it can explain what happened, but it can't tell you the future for nothing. And so because it's all human behavior and that's psychology and it's like the mass psychology is a mess. Somebody sound the Austrian economics alarm. Somebody sound it. <laughs> I heard yeah. somebody refer to the economics of human action. Somebody, y'all need Mises. Y'all need Mises. <laughs> well, the thing, you know, it, it is what it is. It's, you know, it's like, it's like the rules of language. They're not actually rules. What they are is, is an explanation of common usage. They're not actually, because they, they follow they follow the, the usage. They don't actually lead the usage. And so the rules of language are not rules. They're, they're explanations. And economics is essentially the same way. It's an explanation of what happens rather than uh, the rules of how things happen. It's a damage report. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> essentially, yeah, something like that. No or, forecasting. Well, the, but the forecasts are always wrong. And so, you know, you, at some point you have to accept that, well, the, what they're forecasting is impossible to forecast. You can do your best because you kind of have to make some kind of guesses. You have to make some kind of judgments. But you have to understand that they're just your best judgments and they're not going to be right.
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, and, and that, that very thing that, that humility and the, the admission of, of imper- imperfection is something that's missing from an awful lot of stuff nowadays. People don't seem to have the, have the ability to, to go, look, I'm limited in what I know and how I can behave and the, the extent of my capabilities. And so when people say, oh, you know, I think based on these economic rules that, you know, I'm just going to buy, I'm just going to put the, I'm going to corner pork. Like, no, dude, you're not going to corner pork. What are you talking about? And people, people get this like sense of pride in their, in their, in, in that it might be inflated because of siloization or something that, something that tells them, gives them that positive feedback, that success, or maybe hearing it from others and, and the, the, the nature of, of social media to drown out what you disagree with and amplify what you do mm-hmm. agree with. Yep. And, and, you know, I, I tell people like, I'm, I'm certain at this point, I've got some, some anxieties to some, some minor anxieties and hangups to work out myself. But one of the things I, I tell people is I don't, I don't have nightmares about monsters chasing me. I have Orwellian nightmares, <laughs> like legitimately Orwellian nightmares. And that, that's it. I, I, people look at me funny. Like you dream about massive political oppression and control of language. Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. This, I don't know. Like, it's like, well, how's that like, any worse than being dreamed about unicorns being chasing you or something? I don't understand. Have you, have you heard any of those, uh, those, uh, reason magazine libertarian dad jokes? Yes. I, I, some of those are funny and some of them oh, are just man. boring. Yeah, but some of them are boring and overbearing and yes, sad. But, but some of them are hilarious because well, I because I relate to some of them. So you know, it's <laughs> yeah, dude. I dude, my my dad jokes are on point. Like, I was on I was on a Discord somewhere and someone was making jokes about uh, uh, talking talking libertarian to the owner of an Indian food restaurant or something like that. I, one of the guys just discord is going to correct me. It's going to be great. I'm so looking forward to this. Uh, and, and I said, uh, did you, did you explain to him? Of course, over text, this is funnier, but I said, did you explain to him the non-aggression principle as in non-bread? These are the jokes that I come up with. <laughs> this is me in my natural state of terrible joking. And he says, you know what? That sounds like a great Indian punk band. <laughs> you know hey there you go that actually does yeah. sound like a good indian punk band it does it does <laughs> non-aggression principle yeah it, it, and the thing is is it get those those concepts are not in ter- not terribly hard to explain to people like if you say well non-aggression pe- principle you know don't don't hurt people and don't take their stuff like they go well i don't punch people and i don't steal their wallets and they figure you know well that's about where that ends well, it, it kind of you have to think about how it applies everywhere. Yes, use use of force as a general thing, and and that you know a lot of people say uh, there ought to be a law, right? Mm-hmm. That that phrase there ought to be a law, and how that comes back to the occasional legislation of of morality, the idea that society isn't you're not protecting rights by passing this law, you're trying to change people in a way that you think makes them better. Mm-hmm. In and, society, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like it's like in it's like it's like the inside sales of nation building. <laughs> yes, it's, well, I can call it social I engineering. I think is what is a term some of us use. Social engineering. Where, it, where'd you get your degree in uh, social engineering? Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, what is it? What does it call it? It's uh, oh, where does the social engineering come from? Um, I can't remember what the actual. There's these guys who, ah, and I can't remember. There's. No, 
it's essentially these these guys who uh, there's uh, I I'm blanking and I apologize. Oh, that's okay. You have to cut that one out too. <laughs> it might be. Yeah, I know, right? It's maybe it's the school that Bullwinkle got his degree from. If you remember that one. What's What's the matter, you? God, it's been so long since I've seen a Bullwinkle thing. I mean, how do I know, <laughs> dude? I'm 27. How do I know? <laughs> yeah, but they've had Bullwinkle before. I'm 50. You know, so Bullwinkle was my childhood. The original ones, anyway. I don't know if the that was my childhood. The Rocky and Bullwinkle. That you know, those things were great, and now they've got this new and improved version of Elmer Fudd without his shotgun. I don't understand the world. I, I really don't. But it's hard to know what what influenced the the media we all we all took took in as uh, children and adults, or as children to adults. How that impacted us as through our lives, because you know we grew up on. It's me. I'm 50. You're the same age as my kids. I, my oldest son is 30 <laughs> years old. Right. My, I had a, one was 29 yesterday and it's two years. So was, my kids are really right in your age. And my daughter, who is the youngest, she hates her generation, right? Precisely probably because for the exact same reason that you've kind of, that so much of her generation is so self-absorbed, right? She sees Dude, so much. telling me. So much I of totally, her. Yeah, I totally get that. It's so self-absorbed that she just can't stand it. She literally, she comes home. I hate my generation. <laughs> Dude, I, I get so upset with like this just the just the I, I, I ask somebody's of mine, they're like, You're like right between like the millennials and what comes after them, and I'm like, I like neither of those. Can I can I have something else? Please. And it, but it's it's so hard for them to define what it is other than it's selfishness, but I don't think selfishness actually quite defits. I don't think what? I don't think they're actually selfish because I don't well not intentionally selfish, like we think of selfishness. I think they think they're doing they want what's for the greater good. It's just they don't have the – we haven't given them. We, as parents and society, have failed to give them the tools they need to properly analyze the world that's around them. And I think that's – if there's going to be some criticism, before we blame them too much, those of us who are older than them, those who are my age, have to look in the mirror and say, what the heck did we do? Because we raised them. right? And I can sit here and say, no, my kids are, are different, but you know, I'm still of that generation, and it's my – you know, fellow parents out there who screwed that up. So I have to take responsibility for that as well. And we have to look and say, what the hell did we do? <laughs> what, did, what did we screw up so bad that this generation, so many of this generation are like that? I, I mean, I guess, I guess I could imagine, like, if I put myself in the shoes of, of being a parent, I would look back on what I thought my childhood was like. And when you look back at that, it's different than it was when you were in it. Right. And mm-hmm. then you you try to provide as best you can. At least this is what I think. I don't I can't speak from experience here. So parents, okay, boomer, like whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm trying. <laughs> Get yeah, a break. Yeah. Um it's you, you when you look back at something, it's different than if you lived through it. So when you try to recreate based on what you know, what you're recreating, you're not recreating anything. You're creating a new thing. Yes. And I think the difference lies in that, in that, in that nostalgic rose colored lens of thinking back to when you didn't have to pay taxes or go to, or do anything beyond go to school. Like even, even just after, like I graduated college in like 2017 mm-hmm. and um, right after that, my life changed dramatically. Like now there's like, this is, this is going to be commonplace for someone with the experience that you have, but I, at least I imagine 
the the just the fact that every day there's something somebody wants something from me every day multiple things whereas before it was just did you do your schoolwork mm-hmm. school's going good cool turn off chill out now when i come home there's stuff to do and there's 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 always things to do and it just never ends and to think that you know to think that there you you, you might have a different view of the life that you had before that because of the way that you're dealing with things now like the nostalgia I have for the movie Last Action Hero does not make it a good movie. <laughs> this is true. I like lots of bad movies, you know? <laughs> exactly. Like I I I was I was raised I I don't want to say raised on, but movies like, you know, the, like the action films of the of the, you know, mid to late 80s and early 90s and stuff. Oh well, yeah, they were great for their time. Oh man, I dude, I I have a special place in my heart for the aesthetic of the escape from movies the the like mm-hmm. the snake pliskin john carpenter yeah. i mean the theme music the fact that they introduce a love interest in both movies it's around for like two minutes <laughs> and then they die horribly i mean it's just like you can come crash at my place for the night and then just hands reach to the floor and just grab her and yank her through the floor you're like oh again <laughs> that that arc is over yeah it's just so 1980s <laughs> it's like well the, hey, the world sucks we can all die from a nuclear explosion any minute deal with it right it was <laughs> it's kind of like what it was in the 80s right we all kind of expected life could be over any at any minute and so we all kind of kind of enjoyed it we didn't take life so seriously and there was a certain type of um freedom in that Right, we I don't want to feel like our own Snake Plissken in our own story. You know yeah. what I mean? I graduated high school in 88, right? And so that's when I kind of graduated high school. And I, you know, I spent a couple years in college. And then I went back to college for a couple years in, remotely here recently. But most of my educational experience is self-education, right? So I just decided to learn myself. I was lucky. I grew up and my stepfather was a, was a teacher, a science teacher here locally in high school. And he also worked as a research assistant. I believe, out at the UC Davis Medical Center, and he had a friend who was a professor. Quite literally, if you looked up absent-minded professor, he would be, he would be a picture of the absent-minded professor. Brilliant guy, worked on like moon rocks and for bio, microbiology on moon rocks and stuff. Brilliant freaking guy, but couldn't change the oil in his car or balance his checkbook. <laughs> <laughs> right? But, you know, my stepfather would take me out to his house while he'd go work on his sprinkler system or something, change the oil in his car kind of thing. And so I just sit there walking his boundary and he just talked to me about scientific theory and philosophy and using the scientific process to educate yourself. And so I've essentially used that my whole life to self-educate. And I've completely forgot what the point was of this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I did, I did want to know about like, like what, what was important to you in your, in your self-education? What, what, what did you, what did you focus on? What, what benefited you? Because nowadays the game is completely different. You don't go to school to learn anymore. You go to school to check boxes and make sure you qualify. Yeah, you and go you, to school for you, the paper. You go to rub elbows. Like I, I tell you, I would not have gotten in the, into the industry I got into for my non-podcasting job because I don't podcast full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, we can all aspire to be you know as cool as James Just is and just be in the business of communications badassery. But uh, you know, my, my, my normal job, uh, I suppose, if you'll forgive the term, it, it's, uh, I would not have found it like if I didn't brush elbows with the right people in college, uh, I would not have found the industry at all. I would have been 
going to sea and and you know I, w- I was training to be a civilian mariner mm-hmm. so i i would have gone a completely different route i never would have i never would have I'd be a completely different person and just absolutely different and probably a lot more miserable to be honest like i did manage to pick an industry that is extremely reliant on your ability to learn right now like you like Tomorrow, I'm going to a new site that I've never been to before. I'm going to have to analyze it, figure out what it needs, and do the thing. And that's that's how it works. You're just constantly on the on the fly. And every day, I feel like like I get to I get to learn how to do what I do better. And that learning is kind of baked into the job. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't really like. I do some self study, and that like I'll say I want to learn how to do this. And so I'll try and do it. Like one of the things I'm hoping to do later on the show is uh, essentially just a segment of how to blank, mm-hmm. you know, and either either try and find a professional or just absolutely destroy it and not try and do anything productive. Just like how to wire a house, stick fork in light socket, you know, just yeah. <laughs> just terrible things. I, but the idea of learning how to do something doesn't have to come from a four year education. In fact, uh, I would argue that. I learned how to do what I do outside of that. I learned the fundamentals I needed. Uh, I mean, a tiny portion of what I learned was fundamentals that I need to do my job. One arc of classes, Mm -hmm. like three, three courses, really. Uh, I didn't use any of the calculus I learned. I I mean, it's good to know the concept of of a derivative because I do rate of change calculations in my head, but not mathematical derivatives. Yeah. But you, you, you see what I'm saying? It's like you learn the functional blocks that help you mm-hmm. and you, you you do get to brush elbows with people and there is an experience you're paying for. But why would that's that's not worth it. That's not worth it. I mean, I'm I owe I owed Uncle Sam one hundred and twenty thousand when I stopped. Oh, good it took Lord. me five years. Yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah, well, I was just in, in I went to Western Governors University. So it was an online university and it didn't cost very much. And actually FAFSA took care of most of my uh, my tuition. So. But what I did is I took uh, marketing management, and so I front loaded all my marketing, all the the marketing classes, and then the non, what do you want to call it, non corporate management classes. I front loaded all of those, and then took all those, and then stopped going to class. Why do I need to take algebra and all these other classes that weren't, or the the classes in corporate marketing? You know how to operate in a corporate environment when I'm not going to work in a corporate environment. And so I didn't finish my, so I have to go, go, so I didn't finish actually getting my degree, but I got all the knowledge I needed. And then I went out and worked on a campaign for governor and actually learned more in that campaign for governor about marketing than I did in those, in those two years of marketing classes. That Dude, that exact same thing. I learned more about marketing in two months of trying to get a podcast out to people, especially for like, so I'm, I learned, I'm not going to be a social media marketer. Like I'll, I'll. I'm I'm gonna rely on word of mouth, and if that means I'm cutting my cut myself off at the knees, then so be it. But the personal touch is required for something like this. Yeah, it well, just is. It just grows slower. That's that's really the difference. It, is it grows slower? Your your growth is slower from that word of mouth marketing. Your growth is slower, but it's actually more solid because the growth stays. Social media market. The people who you get through social media, they come and go, right? Because they're so influenced by other social media. People who you get and stick to you by word of mouth, they stick. And that's much more powerful. You need a, you can make more money with a smaller audience, with an audience that sticks, than you can with a large audience that ebbs and flows. I think it's great that you can, you're a writer because I, I, my writing process 
stinks. I do all this stuff off the cuff. I, people are surprised when I tell them that I do almost everything off the cuff. Even our TV shows, we just have talking points. We don't actually write a script. The only script I think we moved, we talk about it earlier, is that I have a, you know, it's an ending and a, an entrance and an ending script, kind of. And I butcher those still. I hate entrances and ending for whatever reason. I'm on TV for a year now and I still can't do an entrance and an ending. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm gonna have to re-record. I'm gonna have to like pre-write my intro to this because yeah. my god, I stumbled so bad. Nobody yeah. listened. <laughs> well, it's the the nice thing about intros and entrances is they're gone, right? Once they're gone, no one cares. But I really do. I butcher my entrances because I don't, if they're anything other than normal, like when I had Spike on, I'm used to doing, you know, hi, I'm James Just, this is my co-host Richard Fields, and here's our guest. But we had a fourth, with Spike on, we had a fourth guy, and so I got confused, <laughs> right as we, you know, I said, hit the, hit, the, hit the record button, say, hi, I'm James Just, and this, oh crap, there's a fourth guy, and so my mind is just trying to add, change it in the middle of going because I didn't think it through beforehand, and then... <laughs> And then at the end of the show, I've you've got I've got a nice little script. You know, if, what is it? If you you know, thanks for joining, thanks for watching us. Hit all the appropriate buttons if you catch us on YouTube. You know, just the kind of ending twenty seconds or whatever the show is. And I even butchered that because I forgot that I wanted to give Spike a chance to add in his thing, so I had to stop halfway through. And, <laughs> and so, oh, I, I did that to him too. I totally, yeah. I totally denied him the plugs. It was great. Yeah. Well, we <laughs> he, got, to, he got him in, but yeah. Well, we have to be careful because on our public access show, which is what that was for, is we can't actually do a um, calls to action on public access. So what I have to do when we're doing that because when we're doing it live to Facebook, we broadcast it live to Facebook, and then we edit it. We edit the, you know, any calls to action stuff out or edit it for time to get it into the 28 and a half minutes we have for the public access time slot. And so, you know, we have to be careful. So for the live show, I can let Spike go ahead and do plugs right at the end of the show. Yeah, go ahead and, and do plugs. And then I run the end and we just cut that out. But I screwed it up. <laughs> I know how to do it, but I screwed it up. <laughs> Dude, the way the way I brought him on that that one I'm proud of myself for. I went through the history books and found all of the terrifying and crazy things vice presidents have done, mm -hmm. and introduced him as joining them in the halls of uh, joining them in the the vaulted halls of fame. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like two presidents have shot people. Yeah, <laughs> two vice presidents have shot people, right? And so, and so I listed all those, and then I, of course, at the end to to tie it in, of course, I had to, you know, at the end of the intro, I, I said, you know, there were I, I talked about the cases like the what was it, the second vice president, uh, was it Tyler? I can't, I'm not much of a history buff, but uh, someone established, you know, like Washington established the precedent for the term of a presidency. Someone else established the precedent of uh, right of succession, right? So vice president, vice president, while it doesn't always seem like it's that much of a thing, it's kind of, you know, vestigial in nature. Yeah. Uh, it, is, it is what you make it. And that guy is an intellectual powerhouse. So I can see a ton of value in, in him standing where he stands. Yeah. Uh, but it was super fun to just absolutely just, just drag it. Just, just, I, I dragged him. I didn't say like, Hey, you're just like them. You're going to shoot people in the face. But I, you know, I got on my announcer voice and said, Amongst people like blah, 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 who blah, blah, blah. And it was just so good. And then I said, the newest one is this guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, the nice thing is 
you know, Spike's willing to go along with it because he's got the satirist. He, he kind of plays that nature, and so it, it's it's he's a good guy. He, he Satire just, is so underrated, man. Yeah, so underrated. Well, in politics, the problem with satire in politics is it's time and place, and you have to know when and how because otherwise the media will misuse it against you. And so you really have to be very careful. And what impresses me with Spike is that he's very good at it. And so I, you know, my first my concern was, oh man, that's a hard thing to sell. That's a hard going to be a hard thing to get away from that whole vermin pony thing. But yeah, he deals with it fine. I'm not worried about it at all. So yeah, no, his reputation, from what I hear, it precedes him, and people really like him. And and the thing is, is, you know, I this the, okay, this is worth mentioning. Uh, I've one of the things I hear from people that are you know kind of more capital L libertarian type folks, which I don't consider myself. I consider myself, you know, just this dude. But mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I'm just this guy, you know. Yeah. Uh, but people, uh, the the capital L's out there are worried that this might be some kind of. Uh, I, one of them used the phrase paper campaign. Right or a paper pres a paper yeah a paper a paper paper, paper candidate yeah yeah theoretically paper I am candidate. one too yeah so it's 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 not an uncommon thing yeah well I mean the thing is 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 uh um you know they they were upset and at the end of the day I I'm I'm I like to think of myself as a as a reformist or a directionalist that wants to find a way to make things work for people without causing undue harm through change. Mm -hmm. And that directional idea of let's take this thing that's holding people back and, and move it and move it in the direction that's going to be better for people. We don't have to, you know, people think, Oh, if you, you know, if you vote for this guy, he's all these things he says, they're going to happen, dude. No, no, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like I got, I got people, I got people, you know, hardcore and the fed folks that are going, unless they say that I'm not here. (laughs) Like, dude, it's all about the movement. It's, it's, it's about moving in a direction. It's not about, it's not about like a, a collective wish list, you know, and to yeah. see someone with as level headed as that. And honestly, which, which ties me back to, to you, like I could, I don't know how I'm landing these interviews, to be honest. I, I just don't get it. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking to some of the actually, coolest I, dang people. I can actually tell you it's because you're genuine. And when you're talking to especially libertarian candidates, we will talk to genuine people. It's because where there's so much in the media that is ungenuine. And so when we, any chance we can get to talk to someone who's genuine, who will sit there and actually have an open and honest and free discussion, even, even if they're uncomfortable, it's, Hey, that's our, that is our strike zone, right? We can do that. It's going on to these gotcha TV shows or the gotcha podcasts that we don't like to do. Now we're we'll do them because that's what we have to do. But getting on things like you or, or a podcast like mine or my TV show or any of these things, no, that's a friendly audience, man. We love that kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if you, my, like I said, my audience is not necessarily as libertarian as, as, uh, as or as, as, as part of like that same group of people. I, I have a lot of my audience right now, up until this point, this last episode has been family and they're very different background, but I think they're in the same place. If you're honest and you mean well. Yeah. Most people are, most people are really just done with the vicissitudes of of polarized negative partisanship. I, I think they just are, and one can hope, right? <laughs> one can freaking hope. Political political disagreements are one thing. We can have political disagreements on policy. We can think, hey, this policy is better, you know, overall. No, I think this policy is better overall, right? All things considered, we can we can sit there and disagree on that, and we can go into the assembly or the senate. We can vote and. 
and that things can go whichever way they go and we can shake hands and go have dinner afterwards, right? That's what we're supposed to do, <laughs> right? That's how the system is supposed to work. But it's not working that way because we're interested in winning. So many of our politicians are interested in their ideological victory, not solving problems. I know we discussed it earlier on, but it is so much of the problem with our toxic politics, with the toxic nature of not just our politics, but of our culture. We want our culture to win. We want our cultural attitudes to win. And rather than, hey, can't we figure out a way where we can all enjoy our cultural attitudes? <laughs> you know, yeah. isn't, isn't there a way to do this? <laughs> How hard is it? It's not that hard. I mean, I've, I've talked to people with with ideologies from, from, I mean, as far as the needle can go left to as far as the needle can go right. And all of them laugh. Everyone laughs. Yes. And the thing is, is some people have the the, the wherewithal to laugh at themselves, right? That's why, that's why, you know, again, my, my show is a little bit PG, you know, so it's not, it's not, it's not the cleanest thing in the world, but I try, uh, I've only bleeped myself once, twice, no, once one was on a special report for somebody else who has a much more explicit rating. So I'm only worried about one bleep, but you know, I, my first, my first joke was, uh, it was a, it was right after the president talked about, well, maybe we could put UV lights and sanitizing stuff in the body to clear out the virus. Uh, right. That remember that quote, uh, I made a, <laughs> I made a UV suppository. <laughs> hey man, I've had a colonoscopy. Those things are not necessarily fun unless your nurse is cute. And if your nurse is cute, you don't seem to mind so much. I just, I just I'm just saying. <laughs> now maybe it was the drugs they had, John. You know, <laughs> let me. <laughs> maybe, man, I'll tell you that. But the nurse is cute, and just... I didn't mind so much. I'm just saying. <laughs> Oh man, what this town needs is an enema. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, that may be more true than we think. You know, it's I I live in the capital city, so you know, this town could use an enema. We could really just use a good clean out. That's the thing though, like I maybe maybe I'm just an outsider, but I love that town. I do. I lived there for about about 2 years back 2016, mm-hmm. 2017. And man, I met great people and had an excellent time up there. It was it was so sick and like, and they got up there 30 minutes in any direction is nothing. Uh, 30 minutes in the right direction puts you, you know, at, at a really fun place that there's not many of, like I used to spend a lot of time at the top golf up there, even though I Mm -hmm. suck. Uh, man, I love the top golf in Roseville. It's just bougie and expensive and it just, but it's so fun, you know, (laughs) And, and there's, there's so much cool stuff to do in Sacramento, not to mention the downtown scene, I I've been to, I've been in most major downtown metropolitan mm-hmm. areas in in the in the state excluding San Jose and San Diego parts of San Diego but it's such a cool scene you know it's 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 chilled out and they've got some oh man I remember I was on a oh boy here we go I'm about to get uh okay I was on a Pokemon Go pub crawl sweet no I remember those I didn't go on them but I remember people doing those I always thought those were cool you know not that I wasn't partake but I thought they were cool yeah <laughs> oh man mistakes were made mistakes were made <laughs> <laughs> my kids used to do the Pokemon thing they'd run off and go off and do because there's a we're by the hospital so there's a big Pokemon hotspot thing over here oh yeah I used to I used to do uh, even like a, there's a job site I used to work at the company that I don't work at anymore. It's not related to that, but the company I used to work for, uh, they'd send me out to a job in Beverly Hills. It was like smack dab between like three pokey stops and three gyms. And I was down in the basement. So the GPS was kind of crappy. So it just kind of glitched me around all day. <laughs> it was awesome, dude. Uh, oh, but I, I, I still love those geolocating games. 
I just, I think they're so wonderful because there's, there's a social aspect to it that you just don't get any other way. But this Pokemon go pub crawl that I was on, I, (laughs) every single place, there was like $4 specials. I think I paid more in covers that night than I paid in booze. And I, I, I was too, I was young. I didn't understand what I was getting into the way I should have. And I ended up way overdoing it. And I was, we were planning to walk to the other side of town at the end of night down to old sack and mm-hmm. catch a, catch a lift back. So we walked all the way from, Oh, where did we start this? I think we started, uh, Oh, I forget the name of the park, but we started, there was a park that we started at and we ended up going to, you know, there's that mermaid bar that's super cool, and then there was the, uh, the you know the street where Dos Coyotes and the uh, and the Burgers and Brew is, and then we walked all the way down to Pizza Rock, and then all the way down to all the way down to Old Town Sack, and it was like two in the morning, and they were about to stop sending Lyft drivers, and I was like, okay, let's go home. But I remember, I remember how much fun I had that night, even though I spent you know a third of the night borderline sick. Uh, it was so great. And it was just me, buds downtown. The scene was awesome. I, people, I think, I think especially now we're missing a lot of that because that, that's just closed and it's, it's really going to tax people. You know what I mean? And yeah. if it hasn't already, but it was so fun and I, I miss it. And, and that, that same kind of scene, I don't know. I just, I don't well, know. It's awesome unique, Sacramento, we do have a unique scene. Like, Oddly enough, we're the capital city, but we're not actually a very activisty city. <laughs> you know, there's there's almost no libertarian activists. We have issue activists here in town, but there's no generic activisty people. Even the even the Democrats and Republicans here aren't all that activisty. The activists come from around the areas. They're the union members that come from out of the area. They're not. We're a strange place. It's a very unique city, and so if someone from the outside come in, and I could actually see how that would be. Uh, kind of attractive because there's there's this weird dichotomy of this because we're kind of so stabilized because of so many government jobs that so many people don't have a lot of the same pressures like the economy doesn't have the same pressures that other places do and it and so it, it displays itself in strange ways strange and unique ways and I think our downtown is part of that because our downtown is mostly government office buildings and nightclubs and bars <laughs> yeah well, I mean, some of the best stuff i've eaten there like the best pizza in my life is from there it's from pizza rock if you ever can, if you can ever get into pizza rock that place the inside of it looks like a white snake music video flames cars cages everywhere it's so cool so cool it, it, it's just like you don't you don't see stuff like that everywhere and and to be around what friends i had made through you know through through my my work and through my fiance, like I met a lot of good people up there. So it's, it's a place that I really do like being. And I'm from a nuts and bolts perspective. Mm -hmm. Like I've done the math. I, I love, uh, what is it? DataUSA.io, that website where you can enter in an area code or a city and you get a whole bunch of like CIA world factbook data and all kind just all collated. And you get to see like, one of the things you get to see is home values, how they've changed and even some basic forecasting. Um, Home values have gone up very consistently in certain parts of that city, 12% a year for the past like three, four years. Yeah. I mean, that's not something we don't have that down here. Stuff's really expensive and, and rates go all over the place, but we're, this is consistent. I mean, this is, this is like, it, it could be, it could be a killer time to get into the ground floor, which is why I'm so interested in, in actually, you know, learning how to put down roots and invest. So someday I do have the ability like your grandfather to, 
give a house to my my future. Well, if you can, you want to get into the rail yards area. If actually, it's a new development going in, and if you can get into there, uh, I would suspect that is particular area will have some uptick in the next twenty years in value. But if you're never mm-hmm. going to sell your house, actual uptick in value doesn't really matter. Like you, the, you know, yeah, that's, the value that's the, the truth. The value of my house, whether my house is worth $100,000 or $500,000 is not really relevant, right? It's because my taxes are based upon its last time it was sold because of Prop 13. So it's like we pay our taxes based upon, I think it's like $70,000 value because it hasn't changed. It hasn't sold anything. That's the last oh, time it was damn. sold. Yeah. Prop 13, I didn't know about that. Prop 13 saves my behind. <laughs> That's crazy. Because, I mean, out here you'll pay a point on 850000 Yeah. Yeah, if if the wow. if if they if they forced us to pay taxes on the theoretical value, right? What I could theoretically get sell the house for four hundred grand, four hundred fifty thousand dollars, I'd have to move. I just would because the taxes would force would economically force me to move. But I mean, at that point, where in the state? I mean, I wouldn't. I'd have to go to Nevada. Damn. Well, or I'd have to change, or I would have to change the way I live. I, I, there's not, okay, I don't have to move. I would have to drop a lot of my political activities and focus on economic activities. And I, and, and that's, I, that's been, I'm sorry, go ahead. And I like to focus on, I like to focus on my political activities because I want to make my community a better place. You know, I, I'm willing to sacrifice my economic future, so to speak, to help my community become better because, you know, my family has, generations of my family have provided a, a base level that now I can operate, I can do this. And, you know, I'm trying to give something back, right? We all talk about wanting to give back to our communities. Well, I'm not a rich man and our family isn't rich. We're, no one's here is rich. My grandfather was a, a, a projectionist at a drive-in movie theater, right? He was a union projectionist at drive-in movie theaters. And so he was not a wealthy man, but he, you know, but at the times were, were good. You know, the housing prices were relatively small. He was smart. And they took care of themselves and they took care of their finances, you know, smartly. And the generation of my family have been very careful to not make mistakes and refinance the house and do various things like that. And have they've been stable in their in their uh, employment. Like a lot of my family works for the government. So that helps, you know, it helps create this stable, you know, stable incomes. And so all that we have when we talk about privilege through I have to look in the mirror and say, I am a benefit of privilege, right? So what am I going to do with that? Now, my choice is I could either go off and run off and make a lot of money and focus on economics and be a success. I'm using air quotes, success, as the world would see me. Yep, I see those. Or I can, you know, focus on trying to make my community a better place, trying to reinvigorate this notion of family safety nets, of organic communities, where communities get to design themselves. And so that's what we're trying to do. That's that's a that's a really killer thing, and, and there's, you know, for someone like me, there's there's well, actually, for someone like you, same thing for anybody. There's there's always the idea that there's something in the way for you to for you to give huge amounts of your time to the benefit of the community. You have to give up your ability to find, like, it almost feels like, you know, you might need to be independently wealthy to do something like this. You know what I mean? But. I guess not, you know, and, and learning what it actually takes. And that's, that's been one of the, one of the more powerful arguments for UBI, which, you know, I'm kind of not warm to, but it's okay. I I get it. I I love talking to people about it because it's one of those things where you go, what does this do? What can happen? And that, that idea that there are people out there that 
could actually be of societal benefit in big ways may now have that opportunity because of this, because of this help. Right. And to see that, you know, there could be more people making positive change for each other in ways that we have been neglecting because everyone is heavily concerned with what good they can do. I mean, essentially for themselves, the idea is if everyone acts selfishly, there is a system that kind of supports everyone acting for themselves and things kind of working, but it's not, it's not the happiest thing in the world. It doesn't, it doesn't give you, there's a lot of things that are just left out. And so the best argument I've heard for UBI is that there's things that you, there's things that money can't do Mm -hmm. that money can allow people to do and not having to bust butt 60, 70 hours to get the house over your head might give somebody the ability to start doing something like a podcast, right? Yeah. And and provide color and culture. But the, there's a, the other solution to that is when I talk to my kids is how come we just don't make life cheaper? <laughs> why, why are we focused on, well, we focus on, you know, ever increasing home property values, right? Well, that means you have to focus more on making enough money to pay that rent or to pay that mortgage. Well, if we focused on keeping housing prices at around $250,000 or, you know, something, depending upon your area, right? But if we focused on, instead of continually increasing property value, we focused on, you know, the real value of property, the, the, the value that we get out of it, like, you know, generational value, or the fact that I rent all this out of my garage, right? And so I don't need to go off and buy an office space. So that saves money. And there's all these various issues. We can talk about occupational licensing, where you've got to actually go to the government and get, so, and get permission to try to earn money and pay. Yeah. Yeah. And pay to earn money. And so there's a, there's a whole list of things that we can do before we get to UBI, which I'm willing to discuss UBI, but we've, let's do some other, other stuff first. And then yeah, there's low hanging fruit. Let's do the, yeah, let's hit the low hanging fruit. And then if we, then we can talk about UBI or how we do something like UBI. So for, or create the conditions where we can have more money free for people to act as patrons, right? Cause that's how artists and, and, scientists used to actually be able to operate, right? They have patrons. And now we, yeah, and we got Patreon and I can do something like that now, but as a mass scale. But, you know, Bill Gates and Zuckerberg and all these, they have plenty of money that they throw around to people all the time. And so it's not a matter of that the money isn't there. It's that we don't focus it in the right places. And so we have to decentralize this stuff and get it back down to the individuals. Because a lot of what happens... One of the things I've realized about running for office is running for office actually doesn't cost a lot of money. Oh, actually, that's interesting. I got on the ballot literally spending less than a half a thing of gas. Now, we took a shortcut because what? of because of the California laws, the top two, no one was running as an opponent. Right? And so on January 1st, I wasn't running for office. I decided I wasn't going to do it. January 6th, I went and picked up paperwork. Because <laughs> someone asked me in the grocery store if I was going to help about something with AB5, and I didn't have an answer for them, so I became the answer. And... And so, <laughs> right? I didn't have an answer. Oh crap! You know <laughs> what do they say? Uh, uh, um, man, I'm da- maybe I'm not dating myself. I make references that I probably shouldn't make, uh-huh. uh, just because I am not alive at the time. But yeah, my my dad introduced me to Frank Zappa, and uh, and so I'll, I I when when I say oh it's the mother of invention, necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, I get this Frank Zappa vibe, and nobody gets it. Uh, like someone told me there, you know, I, I want to live where there's open air and I don't have neighbors for two miles. And I'm like, oh, so you're going to Montana soon. Going to raise you up some dental floss. 
and nobody gets it. <laughs> I feel so alone. <laughs> That's what my kids do that too. Cause I didn't get it either. So now you're going to feel real alone. I <laughs> <laughs> Great. That's two bounces in one interview. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, this happens. I did my, my, my daughter understands what Philistines are. So my daughter will go off hey, Philistines, right? She'll, she'll, She's at work. She works at Home Depot, and she'll say, "Oh, these people are Philistines," and no one knows what she's talking about. And she feels she feels lost. You Cretans, what's wrong with Crete? Yeah, <laughs> nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's just we just call people a country, like say they're just a, this is just a nationality. It's just bad now. Oh uh, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 life. Life is great, and 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 the thing that's the thing that's so so like the on the on the mother of invention idea i wouldn't have done this uh i started this i was toying around with the idea you know january and then i was sent out to arizona to do some work and you know i i got sick uh it was some sort of fever or something and then i get over it in like two days and then i turn on the news in my hotel room and they're talking about coronavirus and i'm like oh shoot yeah (laughs) you know and 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 i was like you know Things are ridiculous. Everything closed down while I was out of state. I had to I had to stay an extra week because we couldn't take a flight back. You know, so mm-hmm. I ended up and, and and then the job wasn't done. But long and short of it was, uh, you know, I come back and everything's closed. I'm like, what am I going to do? You know what? I'm going to do that podcast thing. So I start talking at mics and God, it sounds terrible. And it slowly starts getting better. And then I. You know, I start tuning into you. I remember, I remember some, the thing. One of the things that made me really start taking this podcasting thing seriously was I remember you did a live video, and you said what you said was something to the extent I'm paraphrasing poorly, mm-hmm. but you said uh, I'm running, I'm running for office, and I realize that means that sometimes my opinions and my beliefs, uh, while they are mine, they don't matter. You yes. know what I mean? Yes, because I'm I, not running. I'm not running to represent myself. I'm running to represent the people of my community. Well, it sounds obvious when you say it that way, but when I the way I heard it at the time, it was it seemed fairly profound to me, and it, it just made me think. You know what? Why don't I just make a bunch of really stupid opinions, just ridiculous <laughs> ones, and then juxtapose that with awesome interviews with people that pe- people might just not know about, like. <laughs> People, people that I talk to in my circles, they recognize Joe Jorgensen's name mm-hmm. from the PR campaigns and things like that. And I said, you know what, dude, I landed this interview with James just tomorrow. I'm going to talk to him. They're like, sorry. They said, who's that? I go, dude, just listen to the show. You're, you're <laughs> going to, you're going to want to, you're, you're, you'll get it. You'll get it. And you know, you, you're not disappointing. I'm, oh, well, I'm, that's glad to know. That's glad to I've know. I've had, I've had, a, I've had some good belly laughs. I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> Well, I just try to be real. You know, that's kind of the thing. No matter what I'm talking about, no matter who I'm talking about, I just try to be me. And if I step my foot in something, then I'll, I'm confident in myself enough that I can get myself out of it or I can work through whatever stupid thing I may say. But I'm actually pretty good about not saying stupid things. I've actually surprised myself. <laughs> I am not. I say stupid things all the time. Um the, the the latest episode that I wrote was supposed to be funny, and it just evolved out of this just angry place. <laughs> it was it was not what it was supposed to be, and you know it, it, but that happens. And and so the ability to I'm the ability to to, to make a lighthearted show is absolutely wonderful, and I'm I'm yeah. stoked for that. 
Um, I do want to, I do want to kind of bring it back full circle here, and I want sure. to give you the opportunity to, uh, because this is not a public access uh, show. I want <laughs> you to plug the ever loving heck out of everything you want, because people need to be listening to you, dude. I'm telling you. All right. Well, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you guys a quick plug. I'm James Just. I'm running for California Assembly District Seven. So for anybody, anybody who are in Sacramento or in California who want to help, go to justforassembly.com or you can go find us on Facebook, whatever the heck my Facebook page, just search James Just um, and you can find me. I think I'm the only one. Uh, so it's not too hard. James Just, uh, California Assembly, District 7. You go there, check me out. I'm insanely honest and open and honest. We do live streams every Tuesday and Thursday night. I never know exactly what I'm going to say when I go on there. The other day I went on there, I had plans to say, talk about one thing. And I got on there and I talked about something completely different. <laughs> so you never know what's going to come out my mouth. <laughs> I never know what's coming out my mouth. I'll be honest with you. I never really. No, I was going out there the other day. I was going out there to talk about AB5 or something. And I ended up talking about mental health. And so you just never, I just genuinely never really know. Um, we do talk a lot about mental health because that's insanely important to me as someone who's dealt with an anxiety disorder. Um, we do have, a, I do have a TV show called Libertarian Counterpoint. It's public access, but it's also on YouTube. And we've got a, a website, libertariancounterpoint.com. But I'm the one who has to update that website. And so it's usually behind our YouTube channel by a day or two. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't, excuse me, you can find it on uh, Facebook, uh, Libertarian Counterpoint. Uh, I think is TV show, libertariancounterpoint.tv or something like that. I don't actually have the immediate date. We just had Spike Owen and Joe Jorgensen on. We're on every week. You check your local public access. It may be on there. We actually, I don't actually know, remember anymore, how many different public access stations it's broadcast on. It's not just Sacramento's TV stations broadcast on a handful of uh, public access across the country. And the, that is actually the funniest thing. I started the Libertarian Counterpoint TV show. So all of you guys... Find some way to participate in the processes. I joined Libertarian Counterpoint to help out in the control room, and I have still never helped out in the control room. I got sent right onto the, <laughs> I got sent right onto the TV show, and now I'm a co-host. And you know, I direct podcasts, and we have a thing we call Libertarian Counterpoint Community Podcast, where we take members of the community who want to do a podcast, who want to try their hand at a podcast, or who want practice talking, being interviewed, giving interviews, where we we take that and we. We do all the background work for you. So all you have to do is show up, you know, kind of show up to our, uh, our virtual studio. You click in and you can run your own show. Or if you want to learn how to do things, we can teach you. We teach what we know. And our hope is with the Counterpoint podcast is to, for people to outgrow us and to grow and start their own project. And people often do their own thing. And so that's what we try to do. We are just trying to here make our communities better. And we're trying to do everything we can to make our communities better in whichever ways we can manage. Um, my, uh, my campaign is really focused on everything we've talked about here today. We've talked about organic communities. We've talked about family safety nets. We've talked about returning our, our politics. Well, we're not returning. I guess it's never actually been non-toxic, but about getting our politics to a place that's not as toxic where we're focused on solutions rather than winning. And we can do that. We can start making the world a better place. Right on, man. Hey, it's been great to talk to you. I really do hope that uh, if you find a good reason, you come back. 
Yeah, hey, anytime you want me back, you give me a call. I'm, you can find me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, take a cruise on over to www.bmnpod.com for more writings and musings as I have them. I also have a Discord server and a mostly weekly newsletter that are accessible from the website. Both this podcast and the BMN Pod website are completely viewer-funded on a per-donation basis. I firmly believe that I need to earn your contribution with every episode, article, and sketch that I write. So if I did please consider leaving a donation, like buying me a cup of coffee for my efforts, from the link on bmnpod.com in the top right corner. I am on Twitter if you're into that kind of thing, so please say hello there too, at Boston Makes the One. Without your existence, all this work would mean nothing, and I am very grateful to have such an outstanding community to invite into my brain on occasion. Thank you all very much. We will be back next week with author, sports journalist, and local historian, Chris Epting. Until then, fake news until you make news. Music for today's message from Andrew Heaton was Shades of Spring from Kevin MacLeod.